You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. We're going to be talking about really prayer and people, I guess you could say, or today looking at prayer and partnerships with people. Uh, It's important that you alliterate everything, right? So prayer, partnerships, and people. But really here is we're going to be examining what it means to have a prayer life, what Paul uh, describes, uh, how he describes prayer and lays it out. And then we're going to be looking at the people that he mentions by name that specifically assisted him in uh, the partnership with the gospel, in his gospel ministry. And all that Paul did, he wasn't alone and he specifically designates and uh, uh, singles out different people that he wants to thank or draw attention to or uh, kind of the credits of a movie you could, in a sense. Uh, so before that, I just wanna continue on in prayer uh, just as we begin. Uh, Jerry led us in prayer, and as a pastoral prayer, he, he listed and, and shared many people who are struggling and in, in through sickness. And some of you, I can even look out and I can see some of you uh, for the first time in a few weeks, because I know it's been very busy, it's been crazy. Um, as I think was said earlier, I imagine the live stream is probably a, a little bit more active these last couple weeks than it's been. And I know so many, every day I come in and I hear another person who's struggling or in and out of the hospital or something. And so I just, I want you to know we are trying to, we are aware of that. We've been praying nonstop week in and week out here for so many of you. And it's been good. I've already seen a few of you uh, here today. And it just warms my heart to just see the fact that you can join us again and uh, so we, you're not alone, and if you do feel like you're alone or you're on live stream now and you want prayer or you need help, please reach out. We are uh, wanting to, to, we can give you a call, we can maybe visit you, I don't know, but there's so many things like that that I'm just aware of, especially during this time. And uh, I know we got Thanksgiving coming up, which is an exciting time. And then uh, the Christmas elves have already been here. And so Christmas comes early here for Hope Fellowship Church, okay? Uh, I guess that's allowed around here, right? I know some of you have already been blasting Christmas music since uh, really, um, I don't know, the fall began, right? Uh, so we're, we're glad here to begin and, and have that wonderful, cheery Christmas time. Um, so yeah, let's, let's open in prayer. And we'll read this passage in Colossians. Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, for um, the goodness that has been already spoken of, sung about, prayed. Lord, we, we know that you're good and we're so thankful for all the blessings that you have poured out on us as a congregation, as a people, and as a nation. And so, Father, we lift our eyes to you. You are our help and we praise your good name. In the name of Jesus, we pray, Lord, that you are our representation, you are mediator. We pray in your name. Thank you, Lord. As we sung about that, what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Father, you have canceled our record of debt, nailing it to the cross. Lord, thank you that you have become our life. And Father, today, as we have witnessed in Colossians, Lord, you are the center of all things, center of the universe, of the world, of our marriages, of our families, of our lives, of our workplaces. And and God, help us today to remember to kindle that relationship even as we are in this moment in prayer. There's so many hundreds of people listening and here in this moment, and Father, you hear every one of us 
you, you are attuned to our feelings and our needs and our hearts, our doubts, our fears, our, our times of rejoicing. You are right there with us and celebrate with us and you're guiding us and leading us as a good shepherd. I pray God in this moment, in this service that you would be uh, central that our hearts would be drawn to you, our minds would, would worship you, even in the way in which we, as I think Lauren said at the beginning, that we would open our hearts to you, that we would open ourselves to you to receive the word, that our minds and our hearts would be open like, like good soil to receive the engrafted word of God. So Father, in this moment as we are busy people, I say it almost every single week, Lord, we are busy, busy, busy. Help us to slow down, to rest in you, to draw closer to you, and to be transformed in this moment through the preaching of your word as we allow it to bathe us, to wash us today in the purification and the power of your spirit of the word of God. So help us, Lord, in this moment, in this time. God, I pray, please help me to be able to communicate what is in your word, not anything that from me, but from your word and your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn with me to Colossians chapter four. We're gonna read in verse two. We're gonna read in verse two. This is prayer and partnership. Paul gives right here at the beginning some final instructions and he's gonna share some last words he has with the Colossian people and then he's gonna give his final greetings or goodbyes or he gives his shout outs, all right? So here we go, Colossians uh, chapter four, verse two. Continue steadfastly in prayer. We're gonna look at that word to begin here in a moment. Uh, that continue steadfastly, some of your translations might say devote yourselves to prayer. And in fact, I kind of like that translation a little better. We're gonna look at it. But devote yourselves to prayer. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. See, it's like I timed it or something or planned it this way, right? It's Thanksgiving week. Okay, I actually didn't plan that at all, but it worked out really nicely with thanksgiving, right? Verse three, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. It's the mystery that he's spoken about before this revealing of this thing that was hidden before the ages and now is revealed to us now. So this mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Oh, I just sympathize with Paul that every time I go to, on this stage like that, I would make it clear that what's in this crazy head of mind would be able to be clear when it comes out, right? Uh, verse five, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time or redeeming the time. Verse six, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Then verse seven, here goes the final greetings here. Tychicus will tell, and yes, I looked that up to know how to pronounce it. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and what, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. 
Then verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Verse 11, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, meaning they are Jewish people, and they have been a comfort to me. Verse 12, Epaphras, who was already mentioned in chapter one of this letter, but Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, or always wrestling the word there on on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and complete and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, the good doctor, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Verse 16, and when this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea the mystery lost letter that we don't have in our Bible, the church from the Laodicean, but verse 17, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So if you turn back to that passage there at the beginning, we're gonna spend most of our time today looking at the first verses of verse two and three, uh, and also verses four, five, and six. That, that beginning part is we're gonna spend, I'd say probably 75% of our time today, and then we're gonna kinda run through the different people in the final credits at the end. Uh, to begin, this, this concept that we're gonna looking at right at the beginning is prayer. We're gonna be thinking about prayer a little bit, but specifically this word praying with thanksgiving as it begins here in verse two, and praying with thanksgiving, and yet this posture of prayer of devoting yourself to prayer. See, it says in verse two, continue steadfastly in prayer. The ESV, we use the ESV here, Uh, I use it to preach, continue steadfastly in prayer. However, there are some other translations that I really like the way uh, they go about translating this Greek word. Um, The NLT even says, devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind, I like that, and a thankful heart. The CSB, the Christian Standard says it's similar to that. The NIV says, devote yourselves to prayer and really simplifies it. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. It is really simple. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, or being alert and have a thankful heart. So these, this is the, what I'm trying to get us to look at here is this word, continue steadfastly in prayer. What does it mean to then be watchful and to be thankful? And specifically, examine this word to start. The very first word, continue steadfastly or devote yourself to it. What does it mean to devote yourself to anything? One definition says to attend constantly to. Fix your eyes and your attention and your focus towards that thing. I think we were in a staff meeting a few months ago now, or I think, and I don't want to single her out, but Angela Traffy, I think, shared about this word, and then Philly was talking to me about it earlier as well in regards to this word devotion, that both of them had been thinking about this word devotion as, as we often will talk about the word, sometimes you'll hear in our circles, um, devotions. Have you done your devotions, right? It's not a bad way to use the word. In fact, it's a really good thing to say. That if, have you done your devotions? Many, have you spent time with God? Have you read God's word? Have you spent your quiet time with him? Have you done your devotions. This word devotion, to devote yourself, 
yes, has the sense of doing our devotions, but I think this concept of what does it mean to be devoted? What are we, in a sense, devoting ourselves to? Maybe you've heard the word uh, devout. Are you a devout Christian or a devout follower? They are very devout. I think sometimes in our culture, uh, it's even used as a negative. Yeah, they're very devout, I'll tell you what. You know. and, and to be devout, one writer says, to be devout simply means to be deeply dedicated to a belief or a cause. Many people are obsessed with following things closely. They're devout followers of sports teams, political figures, environmental causes, or other lifestyles, or brands, or or belief systems, right? A true follower of Christ is devout because he or she commits themselves, and commits really themselves in every part of their lives to loving or living for God. This is not done out of an obligation, I have to, but rather an or to earn salvation to God, but because he has given everything to us and he is the center of all things, the very, very series we're talking about is in regards to this devotion to God, that he is the central element of all that we are, everything we have, all of our life, all of our breath and our being is centered around Jesus Christ as he is the center and we find ourselves being devout to him. And we are devout to so many things in this world. Different things on social media that we like or literally we click follow that thing, you know. And we stay updated or my phone, little bloop, you know, gives me a score update. Wherever I am of one of those favorite teams that I follow, you know. This person just scored a goal or a touchdown was here and we, we are devout followers. You ask me about one of those teams and I can name off all the latest things that happened. I follow it, I enjoy it. But how is it that we, the people of God, how is it that people see our lives? Do they see us as people who are devout to the cause of Christ, to the person of Jesus Christ? I, I dare say it many times in my own life, I feel it as often I'm tossed and turned trying to find those areas of, you know, that I'm trying to pull down, those places where I'm directing my attention and my devotion to and my worship towards, and I'm trying to remain focused and, and, and sold out for Christ, but it's so easy for my mind to be distracted because I am a person who desires to worship and follow and give my devotion to so many things. James says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, right? trying to find devotion to all these other things instead of just wholeheartedly giving ourselves to Jesus. Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters since either one will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And ultimately he's applying it here to the fact that you cannot serve God and money. You just can't serve devoted to money and find also time to be devoted to God. They don't go hand in hand, we find ourselves being devoted to one. A devotion can also become distracted as we're devotion, as Paul is calling us to be devoted in prayer, be watchful to it, and find that you be devote yourself to Christ and devote yourselves to the relationship that you have with him through prayer. He's devote yourself, but we can come distracted. So many other people are like, hey, look over here, look over here, devote here, put your devotion here, follow me, follow me, follow me. It's everywhere all the time. Second Corinthians 11.3, 
gives us a description of this. It says, but I am afraid that as a serpent has deceived Eve by his cunning thoughts, we too will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It says it right there, devotion. Just like Eve, and I know he throws Eve under the bus, just like Adam and Eve, right, were deceived by the cunning thoughts. You too can be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ to following so many things that are not of Christ. And we find ourselves worshiping things we have no business worshiping. For if someone, then he goes on in the passage, for if someone comes and proclaims to you another Jesus and another one we have proclaimed or you receive a different spirit from the one that you have received or if you accept a different gospel from the one you have accepted, you put up readily with it enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in least inferior to these super apostles. Paul's talking about this in 2 Corinthians 11 in regards to the fact that their devotion is to be sincere and pure to Christ, but they find themselves wholeheartedly throwing their devotion to someone else who calls them a super apostle, somebody who thinks they're better than Christ, someone who needs more attention and worship than he does. So just like the serpent deceives Eve, so too we can be so easily led astray and we find our sincere devotion is not to the things of Christ and not to the true aspect of a life of prayer but rather to so many other things that take our attention away from him. And so he's saying we've got to remain devoted, stay continually, steadfast in prayer, devote yourselves to prayer. So this devotion to prayer is, um, is in a sense you could say this marker or a measurement of our devotional lives to God and our level of commitment to God is in one way I think it can be helpful to examine our prayer lives. The Bible here is telling us to continue steadfastly in prayer. Devote yourselves. Be watchful in prayer. Be thankful in your prayers. Be watchful. Keep awake is what he says, being watchful. Does that ring a bell? In prayer. Who else said something just like this? Remember Jesus. What does he do? He goes up on the mount or in the garden and many different times. But specifically in Matthew 26, he says, and he came to the disciples and what did he find them doing? They were sleeping, right? (laughs) They were sleeping, and he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour, you know? Just one hour, like, this is one of the most crucial times in my entire existence here on earth, and I am about to face, and and they have no idea. And they're tired, they're human, right? They're like you and me. It's like, you know how it is, young parents maybe, at least for our household. The kids are nuts, right? And you finally get them down to bed after everyone without as too much craziness. And, that, and then you think at that moment, everyone's sleeping in the house, right? So you have a few hours to yourself, okay? And then the best time of day, it's the most wonderful time of year, those moments when all the children are sleeping and, you know, for us, it's like, well, what do you want to do tonight or whatever, you know? And it's like, hey, do you have time for a show or do you want to watch a movie or something? And so we do. We sit down and try to just relax for a little bit. 10, 15 minutes into the movie or whatever, I look and I say to myself, could you not have watched with me for just one hour, right? You know, and one of us is either asleep, right? You, you, you can't make it, right? Stay up for us and enjoy the night. Well, we're, we're already asleep. It's uh, 8.30, you know what I mean? Uh, that's how it is lately. And it's just how it is. We are human. We get tired. And could we not watch with us? And I can barely stay up for all those times, but let alone Jesus, late into the night, laboring in prayer. The prayer is hard work. And I think if you were to examine your life as it is good to do so, not in a measurement as you measure yourself to others, but in a sense that 
that, that we have many times, you could say, a sleepy prayer life. You think so? And I'm speaking to myself here. This is, this is obviously low-hanging low fruit for me as a preacher. Anytime you preach or speak, I know where I can go after and convict you of pretty much anything. You know, I can, if I want to bring up Bible reading or prayer time and how much you, time you spend a week in your Bible reading it and how much time, time you spend in, in, with the word of God praying, I can pretty much guarantee I am going to convict you in some manner, right? This is pretty low-hanging fruit for me to say, well, how much time do you spend in prayer week? How much time do you spend reading your Bible? Quantify it. Tell me the number. All right, you're not, you're not doing a good job. You know, you're not measuring up. You know, and I, I know that's easy for me to do. So it's not exactly what I'm trying to do. It's not just try to give you a quantified activity to rate yourselves against one another. That your prayer life isn't meeting the standards of someone else. Some of you are in very busy times of life. I sympathize. Right? And so the time that you might have in regards to others is might be different. And yet at the same time, could you say that there is even a prayer life that exists in your life? Is the, do you find yourselves reading Colossians 4, verse 2, and within your heart, not comparing yourselves to other people, but in your heart, do you find yourselves devoting yourselves to prayer? And let the Spirit convict you of what that devotion means. I don't know. I'm not going to give you a number. There's no magic formula. What do you find yourselves doing when you are uh, anxious and worried, when things don't go the way that you expected it to go? What is your reaction? Our gut reaction is to find ourselves devoting ourselves to prayer, that we go to the Father, the Heavenly Father who can do something about it. And, And prayer is not something that is meant all the time to be publicly displayed Isn't that the the whole heart of the prayer? Because I know even as a preacher, I can convict you of prayer because so many of you will come and even our small group and other times people have said to me, I I don't even know what to pray. I I don't know how you guys do it. You guys always have the right words and you have the right phrases and you, you are so religious in your phrasing. I don't even know the words to say when I pray, right? Is it, do you sympathize with that? That sometimes you go to pray Dear Lord, and you don't know what to say or your mind immediately runs to the next thing you have to do. And so there's this moment where we feel incapable of praying. We feel not good enough to pray. I don't know how it is. It's funny. Sometimes I'll go to events or I'll be at a thing where there's kind of a mixed crowd of people and sometimes... It's like, well, who wants to pray? Well, like, Jordan needs to pray, right? Because he's the pastor, right? He's the one who's got the direct line of God. Everybody else, you know, we just gotta wait him pray. But isn't it so interesting in the priesthood of all believers that we all can speak to the Lord. We all can talk to him in a relationship and prayer is not something to be lofted in front of others. In fact, Jesus reminds us that being devoted to prayer is not letting everyone else know how much you pray and all the ways that you pray. For in fact, Matthew 6, verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love, they love to stand and and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. That's it for them. But you, he says, he goes on and says, go to your closet, get alone and pray. Is he saying you cannot pray in public or incorporately? No, he's saying don't pray in order for others to see you. In fact, sometimes he's saying the best types of prayers are the ones that no one sees. The prayers you pray while you're driving on that long drive to work and you don't even know what to say, you're just speaking out to the Lord. I think so often that that's really what I've learned about prayer 
that yes, oftentimes many are intimidated by prayer. We don't feel spiritual enough to pray maybe or you don't feel equipped to pray. You don't know how to pray. Well, the Lord gives us the Lord's prayer that helps equip us even in to begin with that. Many feel we don't have the right words, but the older I get, and I know that's a weird phrase for some of you as I say that, but the older I get, which is a very limited experience, but the older I get, the more I have experienced prayer and the limits of my understanding of it, the more I'm convinced that God's ear is inclined to the simple prayers of humility, the simple prayers of honesty, than he is always to the prayers of the the religious folk of the outward shows of the bombastic demands to God. I think, I just think sometimes prayer is, is, is so often more about my heart being changed when I, am res- when I am in relationship with God than it is about me trying to change God. And Paul Tripp has this video I saw online. It was really helpful for me. He ultimately is speaking about what is it that we're trying to accomplish in prayer. And yes, there are many types of prayer and many things that we do in prayer, but he was speaking of which I know in my heart that I just, I want and I need. And so I, I tend to often tell God what to do. And Paul Tripp was saying, if I, if I pray with faith, I'll get what I want. Is that what we do? No, 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 he says. If I pray with faith, I'll get what God wants. I'll get what God wants. And so when I devote myself to prayer, in so many things, I'm devoting myself to God. And I'm submitting myself to Him. And I am being watchful and aware of all the things that are going around me. Hey, this brother or sister is in the hospital. Let me be watchful on their behalf and seek the Lord's healing upon this person. And that I trust that God is in control and his hand is powerful. He can do what he wills and what he wants. Hallowed be his name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. These are the words that we pray. As we pray, being watchful and devoting ourselves to prayer, we find ourselves devoting ourselves to God and the worship of God and what he would do and not ourselves. And then it says in this passage that we're praying, uh, we're devoting ourselves to prayer, we're being watchful in prayer, but we're doing it with thanksgiving with thanksgiving. I believe, like I said, this is a good time to practice that, thanksgiving. It's a heart of gratitude, and if, remember, if you've been following along in this series, um, you've, you've noticed as we've gone that I've, I've tried to point out the many different times that thanksgiving is mentioned in this book. If you're looking for something to study this Thanksgiving week, read through the book of Colossians. It'll mention thanksgiving, or giving thanks, or pray with thanks, 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 thanks. It says it over and over in the book. And here specifically, pray with a thankful heart, with thanksgiving within you. Remember, as we looked at two weeks ago, that we aren't taxpayers with rights in the Christian church. You don't walk through those doors and demand of people and one another. We're all on the same playing field for we walk through these doors as the church of God and we are sinners saved by grace. We don't demand anything of anyone else. We're all here sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning of him and we trusting in him, being grateful for him, being thankful for him, and so our hearts are starting from a point of thanksgiving, then we are demanding with rights, because I've paid into this thing, I've gone to church this X amount of days, therefore God, I, I got my dues, I get my stuff back to me, right? No, 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 that's, not, that's the wrong way, rather when we pray to God, we come from a grateful heart of thanksgiving. And so I would encourage us to consider just that topic of thanksgiving this week, In fact, I'm gonna read a psalm, uh, Psalm 100, 
It was a song that as a child, I, I grew up going to DCA and, and we were, I don't know, for every year I feel like, whether it was the Thanksgiving program or I think now they do this Grandparents Day thing, my daughter's in it or whatever, but where you, you have a program and we were always required to memorize Psalm 100. I don't know if you were as a kid, you were required to memorize Psalm 100, but every year around Thanksgiving time, we would quote and recite Psalm 100. And, and I would think it's a good thing, maybe for you around your uh, tables this Thursday. I know it's a busy time, but maybe. It's the food's put down, everyone's ready to dig in. Somebody grab their phone or grab the Bible and, and read before you open in prayer. Read together as a family. It's just my suggestion. Read Psalm 100 together. The Psalm 100 says it is a psalm for giving thanks. I think it is a place that puts us in a posture of thanksgiving. It reminds us, what is it like to pray in thanksgiving? And so Psalm 100, um, it says this, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know ye the Lord, that's what it says when I memorized it, but know the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture and enter his courts or his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. That is a great place to start, to fill our heart with a, a sense or a posture or a place of thanksgiving that allows us then to then step into the next thing that Paul gives us in Colossians chapter four, verse two and three, he begins with devoting ourselves, putting ourselves in a posture of prayer with thanksgiving, and then he makes a request. Because now praying with a posture of thanksgiving doesn't mean that we can't ask God of something. Of course not, of course not. Doesn't mean we can't make, as the Bible says, make our request known to God. The Bible says ask. And some of you don't have what you uh, don't have because you're not even asking. You're not even in conversation with him. You're not in prayer, the Bible says. So notice that Paul's request that is unique though. Look at verse three and four. Again, remember Paul's probably under house arrest or either in a prison, but he is not able to go freely and go where he wills. He is in prison, in chains as he says. But look at this in verse three. What is the request that he asks the Colossians to pray for him? He literally gives a prayer request. Verse three. And at the same time, he says, pray also for us. He's probably speaking of Timothy, who's writing the words that he's saying, and himself, and others that are with him. But pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, or the gospel, on account of which I am in prison or in chains. So Paul's prayer request isn't directly centered on himself. Hey, Colossian church, pray that I can get out of here. <laughs> I mean, no doubt his heart within him I is like, I, I, gotta get me, I gotta get out of here. This is crazy. I, I could be cru uh, crucified. I could be beheaded. I could be executed here soon by Rome. Like, I, I gotta get out of here. Pray. I mean, in a sense, I imagine he's doing that. But in this, at least what he puts down for us, he's saying, look, pray that a, a door opens for the gospel. And, and yes, I would say he even is probably saying, maybe that's my door. I mean, that's my door, that house arrest that I'm under, so that I could walk out that door and proclaim the gospel. But if it isn't that door, pray that a door opens so the gospel would advance and continue. That's his heart. He's filled with a passion for Christ and a gospel of Jesus Christ above all other things, above his station of being in prison. Paul prays not that he would be released and that it would be centered on him. 
He doesn't demand that God would do what he wants, but rather just that the gospel would go forward. Pray that, that, that it continues, that this work is not in vain, but that even he then goes on to pray personally that he, in his place in prison, would be able to speak with clarity to those who are around him. In fact, if you were to turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, Philippians chapter 1, 12, we see a similar same mindset that Paul has as he finds himself in Philippians, also in a similar station. He says in verse 12, Philippians 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Like, I'm here in prison, but I've been able to share the gospel with the royal guard, and they have now heard the gospel of Jesus Christ when before they would not have had a chance. So this imprisonment has served to glorify God. Isn't that extraordinary? He sees that place that he finds himself in, that place of suffering, as a blessing. And so he proclaims the mystery of God and then this um, prayer that he gives, he, he asks that they would pray for him so he would proclaim. And then um, as he kind of goes into the, f- the end of the final instructions, he, he says in this way, which he then applies, okay, pray, devote yourself to prayer. And then verse five, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Walk in wisdom like towards others and your neighbors. Walk with graciousness. The, the idea is literally act in a way. So, so your lifestyle matters, right? Act wisely, conduct yourself wisely. This could be living righteously before your neighbors. I dare say that if Paul was in our day today, he would say, be careful how you live on social media, right? <laughs> Why? Because this is one of the direct ways that some of us, some of us techie folks, some of us who are on social media, this is one of the direct ways that we are seen before outsiders, Sometimes the only way someone outside of this church sees you or knows you is by your social media profile, is it not? How is it that you conduct yourselves before a watching world? He says, be careful the what you do. Walk with wisdom towards them. Hey, because let your speech on social media or in life always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Now, if that's not a conviction, convicting passage for our social media lives or our lifestyles in general, the way we interact with our brothers and sisters, the way we act on the job site with our employees or towards our boss. How is it that we are responding to our wife or our husband? How is it we are acting towards our children? Are we walking in wisdom towards them so that those who are on the outside of the church community look in and see a different lifestyle? They see Christians speaking in a different way. They speak with salty speech. I don't know, some friends used to always say, oh, that's, that's pretty salty, you better be careful of that, right? And that, and that was in a negative way, you're being salty, right? This is a, is a positive way, where our speech should be salty, where Matthew 5 says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, I mean, it ain't salt anymore, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, it's got to be thrown and trampled under people's feet. Are your words really ultimately good for nothing? They're just complaining all day long that really you might as well just trample on them because they're not doing any good. Luke also writes and says salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other, he says. So your lifestyle matters, your words matter. In this political scene that we live and find ourselves in today, our words and our responses and our standing up for truth matters, but the way we do it also matters. How is it that we're seeking to spread the truth today? And I, it, it's, it's, so, it's so difficult. I, I saw one commentator was writing and gave an illustration of like, you know, we might, 
be tempted to always say the right thing but to say it in anger or vulgarity that we're, we, we somehow justify how we're saying it by what we're saying. In regards to this, he gives an illustration. It says, it's almost like you're trying to etch Jesus loves you on a nuclear warhead that you're sending against someone else, right? Hey, Jesus loves you. I'm gonna blow you up though, you know, right? You know, th- this is the way that sometimes we respond and live. We're saying the right things. Jesus does love you, but we're dropping a bomb in them, right? So, so how is it that we're doing this in our lives? And I'm speaking to myself. All right, so, so then Paul goes into this. Hey, pray, devote yourselves to prayer. Here's what you can pray for me for. And then, hey, make sure the way you not only are acting with each other, but think about the way other people are viewing the way you as a church are acting and living out your lives. And then here are some people who have helped me do that very thing in my life. Here are the credits. And he, you know, you watch a movie and the, the credits roll, right? And you just either turn it off or skip it. If it's at the beginning, you click skip, 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 skip until you get to the right part. Here Paul's saying, don't skip this, okay? I've got a few minutes here, but he's gonna go and rock through his partnerships with people. I really am really interested in this. I feel like this could be a, a greater study. You can do a lot of work on each one of these different names. Each person has significance, and I think that's important to remember. Some of you might not find yourselves serving as a deacon right now or as an elder in this church or on staff or up on this, pul- up on this stage very often, and you find out, oh, how do I matter to this church? How do I matter to people? How is it that I matter, you know? Paul's listing many people who don't have a book of the Bible after them. Some of them, the only thing we know about them is their name is listed as a friend of Paul in this passage. Isn't that extraordinary? That some of these people were simply friends that comforted him in his affliction. And so often the body of Christ is not viewed so often by just the leadership, but by the body that makes it up. For no one part is more important than the other. And so here he says in this passage, Tychicus Okay, he has this uh, passage where he, he talks into this man who is mentioned here who is most likely the courier, the letter carrier. He carries the word, uh, this actual physical letter. He delivers it to the Colossian church. Others believe Tychicus also delivered Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those three letters were carried by this very important individual. He was a servant, a fellow minister, Right, so in this way, he was a minister and a servant slave with Paul, he's saying. Uh, the next one is very interesting, and in your small groups if, or in your personal study, you, you can look into one of these questions that I put on there for you guys, but in Onesimus is this next guy. The entire book of Philemon is about uh, this relationship between Paul, Philemon, you could say the servant or slave owner, and Onesimus, the runaway slave. And yet here it's interesting that Paul, when he mentions Onesimus, who had run away from his owner here in Colossae, that he doesn't mention him as, you know, get him in trouble when he comes back, but rather, what does he say about Onesimus in verse nine? And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. It's a beautiful phrase when you think about it. Paul doesn't put partiality, he doesn't rank and privilege people above others. He places beautiful Onesimus as faithful and as a brother in Christ. I don't want anyone here to ever feel like you're not good enough, you don't measure up because of whatever your status, the economy, or what you make in life, your last name, your what it is or what it isn't. You're at the body of Christ. Jesus loves you. Do you know that? He does, and he wants you to be part of the team. He wants you to be of the body of Christ, that we are one with one another, and he has already harped on this very idea. Do you remember in Colossians 3, verse 11? 
Colossians 3 verse 11, he says, here there is no Greek, there's no Jew, there's no circumcised, no uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. Christ is all and in all. We are one together, right? And Paul highlights this by pointing out Onesimus. And then you can get in and read Philemon on your own and you'll learn more about what's going on there. Aristarchus is in verse 10 called a fellow prisoner with him. So there, he has a, another friend and, and fellow prisoner. Uh, Mark is John Mark. So he's actually already and, and at times has a relationship with this guy, the cousin of Barnabas in verse 10, where uh, the cousin of Barnabas, where John Mark and Barnabas and um, Paul had a little bit of a spat, a little bit of a disagreement. And John Mark, uh, Paul was not wanting to go with John Mark, didn't trust him, and he sent him with Barnabas. And that's when Paul took Silas, and you had this couplet team, um, Barnabas and John Mark go one direction, and Paul and Silas go another direction, and God blessed and used that, in fact, to maximize the gospel spread. But at this time, he mentions Mark, he's not under his authority, I guess you could say, but he's saying, hey, if Mark comes in here, he's a great guy, uh, receive him and, and listen to what he has to say, you know? And so Paul's clearly put up and made up with this situation. Uh, Justice, who's known as Jesus, probably changed his name because he gets a little weird. Okay, so he's like, look, just call me Justice, not Jesus. All right, and so he says, I'm Justice. This is a Jewish man. And, and there's a few Jews in this passage. It seems like there's three Jewish people that are mentioned that Paul speaks out to and says, these people are ones who are my fellow brothers and sisters. And when he says that, it's like they get what it's like to be a Jew growing up in this time and then to be a follower of Jesus Christ. They know what they have to put up with. But the majority of people he's dealing with are not Jewish people. They're Gentiles. Uh, Greeks, and so it's interesting that these people bring great comfort to him. They're his fellow countrymen, also along with his fellow church people that are helping him in this ministry. Epaphras is mentioned in verses 12 and 13. He was mentioned earlier in Ephesians 1 where, where Epaphras is almost like the local pastor guy there, and he's struggling for on, in prayer for them on their behalf, and, and his desire is that he would present the church mature before Christ, and he's struggling and struggling in his prayers on their behalf. And Paul's giving witness to that. Like, look, this guy prays all the time for you guys. He's always considering and thinking of you. And I want you to know that he cares about you, he loves you. And yeah, sometimes the things he has to tell you might be a little hard to hear, but, but no, he loves you and he's struggling on your behalf in his, in his prayers. Then we get a, a mention in verse 14 of Dr. Luke. This is the guy who wrote the book of Acts and the guy who wrote the book of Luke. And he is with Paul a lot. And he'll hear him even mentioned in other places in 2 Timothy 4, 11, where Paul gives a shout and says, only Luke was with me, everyone else left me. Luke was faithful even to the end. And then Demas is a very interesting guy in verse 14. He just gets a shout out mention. Uh, it seems like Demas had his good and his bad. Depending on the timing of this letter of when you think it was written, Demas is either... Um, about to be a bad guy or was a bad guy. For in 2 Timothy, uh, it actually says that, this is the passage where Demas, it says in 2 Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly, Paul says, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So Demas gets a shout out in 2 Timothy uh, as having one who was on the team but deserted, deserted Paul in his time of need because why? He loved this present world. It's a direct contrast to what we were talking about this before, this devotion to God and Christ. He loved and he deserted him. 
But here, there's a different timing. So uh, Nympha, it speaks in verse 14, and the church in her home. So it seems like some, some sort of, of wealthy person was allowing their home to be used as a house church, which was the case as the church was in its fledgling state, starting in so many different places. There was a house church meeting with Nympha. He says, gives a shout out to them. Letter to the Laodicean church. So he says the believers who are in another church in the town of Laodicea, hey, give them a shout out. So the, ta- so the church in New Ipswich, the church in Jaffrey, hey, you guys down the road, the church in, uh, I don't know, Dublin or whatever, um, and whatever town, right? He, it's like he's giving you, hey, you guys know those believers meeting over there in Peterborough? You, you go over there and talk with them and, and give them this letter. Hey, and I've sent them a letter. I want you guys to exchange letters. And it's just interesting today. We don't know what is in the letter that Paul wrote to the Laodicean church, but no doubt there were writing all sorts of letters around that time. Archippus, he calls him out publicly, which is very interesting in verse 17. He says to Archippus, do your job, okay? And uh, you're like, no, he doesn't. Uh, Well, he does. He says, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord, okay? It's Bill Belichick's term, uh, do your job, okay? Uh, He's like, I don't know why exactly. We don't even know what the situation is. But he's telling him, hey, make sure you fulfill the ministry that I've given you. Don't don't quit on that thing, all right? You you keep going in it. And then he does so in a public manner. So many people think Archippus was a leader in one of the churches, an elder of sorts, and he calls him out publicly in a, you know, strong way, but also gracious way. And then at the end, Paul says, look, I'm gonna write this ending to you in my very own hand. Okay, many people believe Paul maybe didn't have the greatest eyesight, and uh, potentially he often, almost always had other people write his letters dictate, as he dictated them to him, Timothy no doubt being one of them, and he says, all right, right now, in my little big awkward letters, I'm gonna write this for you, and then he says, hey, remember me. Remember my chains, he says. Remember my chains, a very personal conclusion. And so what do we learn from all this? Well, as we've already said, so many of these people are important. People are important. This church, any church, is not about programs. We say that a lot. Maybe we've got a lot of programs. I love some of the programs. They're beneficial. My kids right now are in a program being instructed. Right? But, but the aspect is we're not built around programs. We're built around people. And ultimately, our faith is not built around programs or rules and laws and regulations. It's built around a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And so this entire series has meant to draw our attention to the person of Jesus Christ as the center of all things. From the very beginning, we looked at Jesus as the center of redemption. He is the center of all things. He's the center of the church and of our hope. He's the center of our maturity and growth in Christ. He's the center of our faith and our religion. He is the center of our resurrection. He is the center of our life, our peace, as Josh spoke into last week. He is the center of our households and our workplaces, and he ought to be, as we looked at this week, the center of our prayer lives and our very relationship with the world and our partnership in the gospel. Christ is overall center of the universe and the very center of our lives. No doubt we can learn that today, that that Paul is writing to us and to remind us, even today in 2021, that Christ is the center of all things. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these truths and we are reminded today the beauty of your gospel truth, the simplicity of it. Father, I complicate it so much, but let us just remember that the core, the base is who you are, who Jesus is. Lord, we pray knowing that, that we oftentimes don't get it all right. And we are asking, God, that you would forgive us in this as we humbly come before your throne. We come with humility and yet with confidence. You are a high priest who makes intercession on our behalf. And God, we come and we are thankful as Jerry reminded us that you have washed the disciples' feet. 
God, you have come and died on a cross in humility. And now we come together on this week of Thanksgiving and we praise your name. We come into your courts to singing and it's your gates with thanksgiving. Like we come today giving thanks because of the truths of which we have heard today. And we cannot help but keep from singing. We praise your name for all you are and what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.